Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. We turn again this week to 1 Corinthians 14. We will be moving to 1 Corinthians 15 in two weeks, which is Easter. 1 Corinthians 15 is the uh, resurrection chapter of the New Testament, um, where Paul teaches on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of us. This week, we are, will almost finish chapter 14, but not quite. And I would say that this, um, ch- this text that we're going to read this morning in the bulletin, it says through verse 40, but we're not going to get that far. We're going to get um, to verse 25, from 21 to 25. And I would say that, uh, I don't even know how to say it, but this, this section of Scripture is, uh, I think, deep in the guts of any pastor who preaches each week. Um, because I don't know that there's any text in Scripture that more, is more directly contrary to the whole church growth movement and to the entire church planning movement today. Um, so let's read it, and I'll be able to open up my thinking to you on this, what the text says to us. But first, let us hear the word of God, which is eternally true. In the law, this is the Apostle Paul writing, in the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I, this is God speaking, I will speak to this people, and even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. This is the word of the Lord. So then in verse 21, you see that it begins with him saying, in the law. So he's quoting from the Old Testament. Sometimes the Old Testament law is called the Pentateuch, the first five uh, uh, books of the Bible. Uh, sometimes the word law is used to refer to the whole Old Testament. In this particular case, he's quoting uh, the prophet Isaiah. All right? And so the Apostle Paul, he's teaching them about their use of tongues in worship, and he says, in the law it's written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people. And even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So the Apostle Paul is making reference to a well-known text in the Old Testament that Jews would have known. And I read that to you this last week. And this text is speaking about a time when the Jews, who were God's people, who had the word of God, who had the revelation of God, who had the prophets, they had everything that God could give them, they hardened their heart against God speaking to them. They hardened their hearts against the word of God, whether it came from the law the written word, or whether it came from the prophets. God privileged the Jews by giving them 
his word in their tongue. And they despise the privilege. And so what did God do? God then sent them foreigners who came into their midst and began to speak to them in an unknown tongue. Remember what we said last week about the Tower of Babel. Babel is actually not a part of the grand diversity of creation that we should celebrate. Babel was a punishment of God for our pride. And so we began to not be able to understand each other. The same thing is going on with the Israelites. The Israelites refuse to understand the words God speaks to them that are intelligible, that are simple, that are clear. The prophets, if anything, they're clear. And they despise it. And so what does God do? God sends foreigners who speak in an unknown tongue. And so what the apostle Paul is doing is he's saying, look at what happened. They heard God speak to them in their own language, and they despised it. And so God sent as a judgment foreigners in a language they didn't understand. Now, you know how this fits into the whole of of the book of 1 Corinthians, and you know that we've just gotten done looking at the issue of the gift of tongues, right? And the gift of tongues is a gift. But this doesn't sound like a gift, right? And so right now, some of you who are real analytical and obsessive, you know, you're sitting sitting there, now wait a second, the gift gift of tongue and the gift of tongues, and you know, and you're caught in the details. Don't get caught in the details. The Apostle Paul's making an argument. If If you stop a guy that's making an argument in the middle and try to get him to define his terms, it just doesn't work. So don't get all obsessive about what he means by tongues here and what he means by tongues here and here. All he means by tongues here is a foreign tongue, something you don't understand. In other places, he means the gift of tongues. That's that's not what he's talking about now. What he's dealing with here is he's trying to get you to understand that tongues in the book of Isaiah were a judgment. They were negative. And he's setting that up as a parallel to tongues in the Corinthian church. And he's saying it's negative in the church like it was negative in Isaiah. It's negative. Why? Well, not because the gift of tongues is negative, right? And so, you know, you immediately want to say, well, now, wait a second. Are we talking about the gift of tongues or are we talking about foreign languages? The Apostle Paul's talking about the fact that both to the Jews in the Old Testament and to the people in church in Corinth, tongues were negative. That's the salient point. If you can't understand what is said to you, it's a judgment of God. Now, you say, whoa, that's pretty intense. I say, well, what what about Babel and Babel? Was that a judgment of God? You say, well, yeah, but that's the beginning. And I say, okay, do you remember what Jesus said when he was asked why he taught in parables? Do you remember he told the story of the seeds in the soil And then the issue of parables came about. And this is what he says in Luke 8, 9, and 10. His disciples began questioning him as to what his parable meant. And Jesus said to them, he said, verse 10, Luke 8, to you, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables. Why? 
Well, he answers, so that, it is in parables, why? So that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. So Jesus is God. Jesus taught in parables so people wouldn't understand him. He taught in parables so that it would be unintelligible to them. Now, what, what is the application of this to our lives? I've told you before, some of you have heard me, that when I first went in the ministry, I was asked to visit a man who never came to church. His wife came, but he didn't. And so I went to visit him. He just had surgery, and he was laid up at home. He was retired. And I sat down in front of him, and we began to talk. And it did not take more than a couple of minutes for this 30-year-old, wet behind the ears, innocent, naive, guilty, naive, stupid, to realize that this man had spent his life judging God. Why? Well, because he immediately, here's the preacher. You know, he'd probably not been visited by a preacher before, you know, but my dad had told me I needed to visit people. So I went and visited him. And he told me that it was not right for God to judge people who have never heard the gospel. And so I immediately realized the reason this man never went to church, the reason he was adamant in his unbelief was that God owed everyone the chance of saying no to Jesus. And so he judged God. And I remember listening to that man. And I'm new to the community. I just mind my own business. And there's this man, and I remember distinctly the hair stood on, up on the back of my neck. I could not believe that there was a man in front of me who was accusing God of evil. I, I remember this like it was yesterday. I had never heard such a thing before in my life. Well, ever since then, I realize it's everywhere. To him, the world is set up in such a way that God is not good unless God does what he thinks God should do. And you know how common that is with people. We all judge God. And this man had judged that God owes an intelligible, simple statement of the gospel message to every person who's ever, ever lived. And if that's not the God that exists, then he damns God. Okay? Does God owe the Native American living in 1491? Does God owe that Native American the gospel in his language? Come on, does he? He doesn't owe it to him. Why not? Because Adam sinned. You say, well, what does Adam have to do with it? Here's another concept that's really hard for us as Americans because we're so cocksure of ourselves and proud. God tested you in Adam. It doesn't matter if you're a woman. It doesn't matter if you're young or old. Not Eve. God tested you in Adam. And when your father Adam sinned, that damned you to sin and death. 
And that's the whole story. The Bible's very clear about this. In Adam, we all died. David says in the book of Psalms, in sin, my mother conceived me. Sin corrupts us from the moment of conception. Okay? We think sin comes to us through the man because that's why Jesus was a virgin birth. Jesus is the only one who has ever been born who has not been corrupted by original sin. And so God does not owe anybody since Adam anything. He doesn't owe anybody anything. When the Bible says he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, that's an unbelievable, wonderful thing from God that we don't deserve. Right? It's unbelievable. When you wake up without being crotchety, that's unbelievable. When you have patience in the discipline of your children, that's unbelievable. That's rain falling on the unjust. Your lack of anger and disciplining of your children is the rain falling on your children that don't deserve your patience. Listen, we don't, any of us deserve any good thing from God. We don't deserve it. We don't come to God as his accusers. You remember what the Apostle Paul says about that? He says, basically, how dare you? You accuse God? You try that in a courtroom next time you're in a courtroom. I would like to have a video. You try to teach, a, to, to, to teach a judge what is fair and unfair in a courtroom, and I'd like to have a video. Go ahead, knock yourself out. You try to explain what the right grade is when you take classes from a teacher or a professor in here. Knock yourself out and take a video. We submit to God. And God defines what is right and wrong by his perfections. What God does is fair. Not what we think would be fair. What he does defines fair. So here's the truth. It would be unfair for this world to exist in such a way that every single person owed an explanation of the gospel in his language. That would be unfair. How do I know that? Well, because God didn't do it. (laughs) And God defines what is fair. Until you reorient yourself so that you learn that everything that God does is perfect. His anger and wrath and his mercy and long-suffering. They're in perfect harmony because God is perfect. Okay? So what God does is perfect. So listen, all of you that think that everybody should have an explanation of the gospel in their language, no. God judges unbelievers by not giving them the gospel in their language. And you say, well, no, if they've never heard, they can't be unbelievers. I say, really? That's what Romans 1 told you? Romans 1 that says the wrath of God is being revealed against all mankind. Why? Because they knew God from creation. And you say, well, creation isn't Jesus. I say, yeah, but they don't respond to creation. So that's sufficient to be unbelief. You understand? People that look at creation and come from, get from creation that, that the world is a beautiful place, it's sustainable. 
and that if people would just get out of the way, the earth would sustain itself? Look, they're bad scientists, let alone bad theologians. The earth is not sustaining itself. The earth is consuming itself. The fall is in creation. It's not just in man. Man's action of sin in Adam corrupted nature. Right? You've heard the statement, you know, uh, um, Have you, heard, have you heard the poem? They say God is love. You know what I'm going to say next? Dan Sparks should know it. Our resident hippie naturalist. They say God is love. Anybody know what I'm going to say next? Wow. All. Come on, say it. Do you hear that? They say God is love while all nature, red in tooth and claw. (laughs) Do you get it? Do you get it? Is nature just demonstrating the grand glorious tapestry of togetherness? Nature is not pretty. Don't let them lie to you. They say that God is love. Wow. They say that God is love. Meanwhile, all nature is red in tooth and claw. You know, uh, Lucas sent out this article, and it's about how all the smarty pants in Silicon Valley think that they're going to keep themselves living forever, right? So it's an Atlantic article about what they're doing to try to live forever. So my, my son Joseph was describing the article to me, and he said that these guys are doing all these potions that they're taking and, and they're boring down into the chemistry and altering their, you know, their tooth enamel and who knows what they're doing. And then Joseph started laughing. Joseph is my son. And he's a pastor over at a church in Cincinnati he's planning. And Joseph said that the funny thing is that the deeper they bore into the chemistry of man, okay, what do they find? He said, things fall apart. Great book if you haven't read it. He said, the deeper they go, the more they find things falling apart. The deeper you go, things fall apart there too. That you go down into nature, you go down into chemistry, you go down into longevity studies, things fall apart. Have you noticed this about your body? Okay, things fall apart. Why? Because of Adam's sin. If you have a problem with Native Americans in 1491 dying who never heard the gospel, how do you feel about your arthritis? How do you feel about your bloody noses? How do you feel about the indignity of being a woman? I mean, let's be honest, right? There is a certain cost to being the life giver, isn't there? We don't owe God. God doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us an intelligible language. And Jesus says he taught in parables because he did not want you to understand. And you say, that's right, I don't understand. And I say, that's because you, un- you don't believe. 
And you say, oh, no, I do believe. I say, no, you don't, because if you believed, you would understand. You remember what Jesus kept saying over and over again, let him who has ears hear. And so here we are in the middle of this section about how they worship, (laughs) you know, All we were doing was just talking about how to worship, you know? We weren't having this thing about the goodness of God and, you know, all this other stuff. And the Apostle Paul makes allusion to this condemnation of the people of God for not listening to the prophets, and so he sent them foreign tongues. And then he comes into the church and he says, okay, now you guys are taking a gift of the Holy Spirit and you're using it as foreign tongues, you know? Nobody understands And you say, yeah, but in the Old Testament, it was people taking them into captivity, and the reason they spoke in foreign tongues was because God was sending judgment on them. But here it's a charismatic gift, you know? Does not compute. Well, actually it does because the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to make it compute. Okay, so this is the application of Isaiah. The application is, it is a judgment of God when we do not understand his message to us. If we don't understand, if it is in a foreign language, it is because we are under judgment. Listen to what Charles Hodge says here. He's a great uh, theologian. Um, from Princeton, if that helps you. And he wrote this about this. He said, when the Hebrews were disobedient, God sent foreigners among them. When obedient, he sent them prophets. (laughs) Now, is that not a sort of um, choice that neither side is good? I mean, do you want foreigners? I mean, yeah, but no, right? So then let me ask you, if you don't want foreigners and you have a choice between, do you want a prophet? (laughs) Which would you like, foreigners or prophet? It's funny, right? I mean, there is a certain humor in this. Listen to it again. He says, when the Hebrews were disobedient, God sent foreigners among them. When obedient, he sent them prophets. Unintelligible teachers are for the unbelieving. Those who can be understood are for the believing. (coughs) Now, I see your faces as I preach. And right now, um, most of you are not real happy with me. You're not angry, but you're just like, okay, come on. Now, why are you that way? Well, it's because you don't want me shoving your nose in the fact that you really don't want a prophet. Right? You're willing to submit to a prophet, but not willingly. It's like you spank your child and you get done. He won't give you face contact and he has a stiff neck. Right? That's how you are about prophets. But do you realize that it's a great privilege from God to have a prophet? (laughs) Now, I know this is a little weird. This is like your dad telling you that you should be happy that you have him as your father. And he's just disciplined you, you know? It's like, if God loves us, he sends us prophets. 
he sends us teachers. And if he really loves us, they'll be so tenacious that they won't give in to you. I have told many of you about Rita Cuffey. She's one of the principal gifts that our family got from God when we moved to Bloomington. She was an older woman who was extremely godly, knew the Bible better than anybody I've ever known in my life, didn't just know where something was to be found, but what part of what page and which side of the book it was on. She could, I think that's page, and on, up in the upper right corner, literally. And Rita Cuffey would come in and we'd meet together once a week and she'd always say, now what can I pray for you about as she'd leave? And I would always say, would you pray for purity? Would you pray for me to read the Bible and pray? And so after a few weeks, she began to bring in somewhere between 14 and 25 or 30 pages, handwritten of scriptures. And she'd walk in, she'd hand them to me and say, now, 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 now you just read these and then we'll talk. And that was her way of making sure one day a week I'd read the Bible. And so as the years went by, this went on for 10 or 15 years, as the years went by, every week I'd get these and I got to know what were Rita's favorite scriptures. And do you know what one of them was? One of them was, he will not remove your teachers from you. But he will send you to, and they will say, this is the way. Walk you in it. And here's this woman who is godly, uh, brilliant, just the joy of our family. There at birthdays and Thanksgiving and you know, when we took Joseph out on a college visit, Rita, Rita came along. And one of my favorite memories was taking her to, uh, uh, oh, I'm going to forget it. I forget it. Anyhow, it's a seafood chain. Uh, uh, what is it? In Boston. Huh? No, no, no. Legal seafood, I'm sorry, legal seafood. And Rita liked lobster. So we got her a whole one. And they put a bib on her, and she went to town. She must have been about 80 or 83 at that time. And it was, she was just happy. She was so happy. And here this woman is week after week. I mean, it wasn't every week, but it was again and again and again and again and again. What she writes out is, he will not take your teachers from you. And they will say to you, this is the way you walk in it. And here I am, her teacher. And she's telling me week after week how thankful she is to have me be her preacher. <laughs> you know, it's like, are you serious, you know? Now listen. If God loves you, he gives you a heart for prophecy. He tunes your taste for prophecy. I was trying to talk to Mary Lee about what to serve the grandkids, and Mary Lee was saying that the grandkids didn't like, what was it? Huh? Mushrooms, yes. So we shouldn't put mushrooms in the spaghetti. And I'm like, 
How are these unsophisticated palates going to become sophisticated if you don't put mushrooms into the spaghetti sauce? You know? Every person has a duty to learn to love mushrooms. <laughs> and to particularly eat ones that Eric Rasmussen has picked. And he's careful. <laughs> Listen, as Christians, it's hard for me to understand how we can know Jesus Christ and not love prophets. Do you know Jesus? He's, he's the king. He, he's the priest. But he's the prophet. How can you love Jesus and not love prophets? And when you love prophets, you know why you love them? You love them because God has humbled you. And he's given you a taste for confessing your sin. And do you know how miserable a life it is when you can't confess your sin? Is there any other way of explaining sports? Sports is the pastime of people who are incapable of confessing their sins, and so they have to get their joy somehow. But think of how many years Cubs fans were disappointed trying to get that joy. It went on for how many years? A lot. <laughs> or how about ice fishing? Is there any other explanation for ice fishing? <laughs> Honestly. I, I've done it. I've seen it. It's unbelievable. There is another explanation, and that is a dripping faucet. <laughs> and see, you don't know your Bibles, but the Bible says in Proverbs that it's better to live in a corner of an attic than in a home with a dripping faucet. In other words, a complaining woman. Okay? So, what we're being told here is that it's a privilege to understand what God is saying to you. And so the Apostle Paul is saying to the church of Corinth, listen, you guys need to speak intelligibly to each other. You need to prophesy to each other. And so that's what he says. He says this. Verse 23, therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men, and that word ungifted is basically the word idiot in Greek, um, people who are uneducated and don't understand, okay? And then, or unbelievers, and that's the word without trust. So without knowledge, without trust. They're both the same. And if they walk in, will they not say that you are mad? In other words, they'll think of us as a church, if we're speaking in tongues, as the guy that walks down the street in the city, and he's just cursing at the top of his lungs and saying gibberish and flailing at the air with his hands, and everybody looks at him and goes, <laughs> and tries to avoid eye contact, right? That's how unbelievers or the uneducated will feel when they come in if we're all speaking in a foreign tongue. Now, let me ask, if it's the gift of tongues we've been talking about here, and we're all speaking in tongues, is tongues a gift of the Spirit? Yeah. So this doesn't really make sense, because if the Holy Spirit is giving the gift of tongues, 
And everybody's speaking in tongues. And what everybody is doing is exercising a supernatural sign gift, right? And so how can anybody discipline a supernatural sign gift? If the Holy Spirit is given the gift, we wouldn't ever want to say no to it or redirect it, right? Wrong. It is a supernatural sign gift, glossolalia, and the Apostle Paul says you may not do it like that. You must have an interpreter or be quiet. Because if the pagans, the unbelievers, and the people who are uninitiated, unknowledgeable come in, they're going to think you're all crazy. So don't do it, right? And then he says this, listen to this. But, so that word but is... It's an adversative. That means, on the other hand, in other words, opposite. But if all prophesy, if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man, an idiot or an, somebody without faith, somebody without knowledge or somebody without faith, and they come in, they enter, he is what? He's welcomed by all. Everybody says hi. People invite him home for lunch. He's just loved by everybody. He, we have designed, now I'm being facetious, you all have to know that, okay, this is a joke, but it's a joke with a point. Everybody, we've designed a seeker-sensitive church. And so, because we want people to come to faith, we have set our church up. Now, you remember a guy named Bill Hybels, right? You ever heard of Willow Creek? It's all over the world now. Okay, so Bill Hybels at the beginning went out and asked all the unbelievers what they wanted in a church. And being unbelievers, they told him they wanted anonymity and, and they didn't want to be convicted, now, that's not exactly how they said it, but that's what they said. And so Bill Hybel set up a super successful church that had anonymity and no conviction of sin, except sometimes Wednesday night when seekers didn't come. Okay? And after 30 years of it, they made an announcement nationally, because they're big stuff. And the announcement was, we've realized that there's no discipleship going on in this church. Well, now, why isn't there discipleship going on in their church? Well, the reason is because they don't have any believers in their church. And you go, oh, we got you on this one. That was too far. And I say, okay. So how do you explain people being in a church for 30 years where when they gather for worship, there is no prophecy? How do you explain that? Would you put up with being in a church every Sunday where there's no prophecy? Huh? Would you like to just be flattered? Is Starbucks coffee in the lobby enough for you? This is the whole church growth church planner movement. This is it. The whole church planner movement is a scheme to avoid depending on the Holy Spirit. And so it's brewskis, it's eyeglasses. I have a pair of eyeglasses I bought a couple years ago. Nobody will let me wear them in here. But they're the biggest honking glasses that you've ever seen in your life, and the sides are bright yellow. And I just think, okay, you, you don't want a profit. Okay, I guess I can get eyeglasses. Remember Rob Bell's eyeglasses? It's like, dude, 
<laughs> you know, and you say, well, what do you think about my eyeglasses? And I say, well, you're not a church planner. You can wear whatever stupid eyeglasses you want to wear. <laughs> we sell the church through eyeglasses, through brewskis. We sell it through hairstyle, spiked, down, long, ponytail. We sell it through what the parking's like, with what kind of web design we have. Everything we do is carefully tuned to what? It's carefully tuned to feel unthreatening to unbelievers. Honestly, come on. That's what it is. Then they come into the church Sunday morning, and because we've done such a good job of communicating who we are to them before they ever come, when they come in Sunday morning, I'm still kidding, then we give it to them. Then we have prophecy, <laughs> you know? And they're convicted of their sins, right? Wrong. The one thing absolutely necessary at Willow Creek and every other hipster church is that you don't convict the seekers on Sunday morning. What you do is you win them to your personality, to your hairstyle, to your, sun, to your eyeglasses, your sunglasses, to the, to the efficiency of the parking to the proximity of the exits, to the low threshold of departure. On the one hand, we have unintelligibility. The teachers are not given to us. The prophets we despised, and so we were given unintelligibility. Do you understand me? And that's what the church growth movement is today. It's completely unintelligible. And it's intentionally that way. It exists on equivocation. It exists on nuance. It exists on suggestions. And everything they do is aimed at telling you that they have no authority and they don't claim any. They don't claim any authority as a man with women. They don't claim any authority as a pastor over his flock. There's, their elders are trained not to claim any authority in the church discipline of the people. There is no church discipline. And then you're going to tell me that in that church, prophecy is loved? No. God has given them complete unintelligibility. The medium is the message. And the medium is the, the, the beard, the trim beard. The, the, I said soul patch last week. So, no, not, not soul patch anymore. Okay, I don't know what the latest style is. Aren't you glad you have a preacher that doesn't know what your latest style is? It's a beard now. So now what's hip is beard. So now all the brewskis are getting beards. And here's what God says. God says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever and ungifted now, what's the whole point of the church Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded. And lo, I am with you always. All authority has been given to me. And so the goal of the church is that people come into our worship Sunday morning, and what do they find? Prophecy! And what happens? And remember, it's good. What happens? It's good. Here's what happens. Listen to it. 
But if all prophesy and an unbeliever, ungifted man enters, he is convicted. There's not one person here who is going to tell me that the church planning movement today aims at the conviction of sin of the people that enter. I'm not saying there aren't individual churches that do it, but taken as a whole, the church planning movement is opposed to the conviction of sin on Sunday morning. They are convicted by all. They're what? Called to account by all. You're going to tell me that churches in America today try every Sunday morning to call everybody in the pews to account. Is that what is going on in the churches in America today? (laughs) You know, did you come expecting that I'd call you to account? (laughs) It's a joke. None of us would ever expect to go to a church and be called to account, right? Come on, people, give me some love. Am I right? I mean, for heaven's sakes, we all know what I'm not supposed to do. So they're convicted, they're called to account, and man, this is a progression. (laughs) You ready? Fasten your safety belts. Okay. Convicted by all, called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. (laughs) It's like, dude... You know, so often when I'm reading the Apostle Paul, what I want to say to him is, Paul, you just don't get it. Convicted by all, called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, and this is, of course, the ultimate goal of every one of our churches, right? So that all will fall on his face and worship God declaring that God is certainly among you. How do people know that God is among us? Because they're convicted of their sin. They see who they are. They see there's no hope for them. They see that you know there's no hope for you. They see the preacher knows there's no hope for him. And so they're in a safe environment for the first time in their life. They don't have to put on the pretense. They can think all the dark thoughts and bring them to the choir for the choir to give them the balm of Gilead. That we praise because we're convicted of sin. And we know we have a Savior. And so we praise him because there's nothing else for us to do. We can't drown ourselves in self-pity or depression. We know who we are. And so we fall on our faces and worship God. That's what you do when you're convicted of sin. Okay, does this make sense? This is the purpose of the church, to be a safe place where people can come and can say, "Ah, ah, ah, you don't know me. And we look back at them and we say, "Ah, yeah, I do. And they say, I don't think we've ever met. And you say, no, but I know me. Okay? And we're humble, and we will not tolerate a preacher who doesn't prophesy. (laughs) All right, now one last thing, and I'm done. Aren't you glad? Listen. Did you notice the little word all in there? Did you just sort of blip right on over it? And he prophesies, and Tim prophesies. That's what I'm sick of with you. 
Okay? Now, now I love y'all. All y'all I love. But I'm tired of you demanding that I be this, like, crazy ant in the attic <laughs> that believes in prophecy so that you don't have to. Would you believe in prophecy and would you believe in it for something other than your own spiritual benefit? If you believe that I'm the only one in this church that's called to prophesy, then you don't really believe in prophecy. Jesus is a priest and a king and he's a prophet and you love Jesus. So this means that you're supposed to take up your cross and follow him. You are to be a prophet. You are to be a prophetess. If you bring somebody into church on Sunday morning to see the crazy Ann in the attic, guess what they'll think? They'll think I'm a crazy Ann in the attic. <laughs> I'm not. I know I'm not. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And so it's like, remember I told you when I was a little kid in Philly, I go to the end of the block and there's a train track, right? And I didn't want to walk to the park. So I'd take a running jump and hop on the ladder on the boxcars. And you know, you better be going approximately the same speed as a train because it won't slow down. If your arm catches it and you're still going two miles an hour and it's 10 miles an hour, something could happen to your socket of your, of your shoulder. And that's what happens again and again and again is you bring people here and you've been a coward. You have refused to take up the cross of Jesus Christ in your life. You have refused to love your neighbor. You've refused to love your relatives. And so you bring them in and they see the crazy aunt. And they think, these people are lunatics. And it's because you've never, you've never talked to them prophecy. You've never given them the benefit of seeing their sin. And so you want me to do all the dirty work for you. You want me to just be that engine that just keeps going with people. And, and every week I get reported, yeah, I brought my brother-in-law and his, he, he, his arm was yanked out of his socket. And I go, no kidding. I must have done something wrong. Did I tell a bad joke? Was I too old, too young? Did I not have a beard? Did I have a beard? Did we sing the wrong music? Maybe Jody wasn't smiling enough. <laughs> yeah, that's what we do in staff meetings Tuesday. We sit around and figure out why, why his brother-in-law had his arm yanked out of his socket. Listen, this church cannot be a guilty private pleasure for you. I'm tired of it. I see it. I know exactly what's going on with you. You have to suffer shame for his words. Because if you will not suffer shame for the, shame for the words of Jesus, then at the judgment seat he will be ashamed of you. I cannot do your work for you. It says all. And clearly that doesn't mean that the preacher handles it for you. Okay? 
This church needs to be a principle that you carry with you everywhere you go, not because you love this church, but because you love the bride of Christ. And you know that Christ died for his bride, and you know that everything Scripture says is true. And why would you be ashamed of what Scripture says? Honestly. Honestly. Why would you be ashamed of what Scripture says? Honestly. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. His burden is light. Why would we be ashamed of Jesus? Why? Honestly. Honestly, hasn't he done enough suffering? It's like men that want to send women to fight in Iraq. It's like she gave birth to you and now you're sending her over there to fight. Hasn't Jesus done enough? Now, I know that sounds horrible, and it is horrible, but you get my point. You know, can't we take up our cross? This church needs to be filled with unbelievers who you have prepared to hear prophecy because you've been a prophet to them already. And they come into the church and they go, oh, now I know where he gets it. Everybody here is this way. And listen, this is the truth. They will feel absolutely safe for the first time in their life. Because their sin is in the open. I'm not going to speak about their sin to them personally. I won't do it, but the Holy Spirit will. And then they'll see that they can confess their sin. And then they will fall on their knees and worship God. That's the meaning of this text. If you want to use me as a reinforcement of your prophecy, there's nothing I'd like better. Are you with me? But I would love, like I said last week, I think I'd love sometime in my life to be the one that tells you, chill out. Just a little bit. You're too zealous. Tame it. Okay? But please do not expect me to do your dirty work for you. I can build on you, but I can't be the train that yanks the arm out of the socket. All of them prophesy. All. This is your job. Okay? Let's pray.